electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl, thanks very much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour, the true state of stocks, which despite today's rally or Heading for a down week, we debate the road ahead with the Investment Committee. Joining me for the hour today, Bryn Talkington, uh, Shannon Sakosha, Jason Snipe, and Steve Weiss. Also with us on set today is Dubrovko Lakos. He is the global head of equity macro research at J.P. Morgan. He was just named the number one ranked strategist for quantitative research by institutional investor, fifth year in a row. Welcome and congratulations to you. It's great to have you here in person. We take a look at the markets. I said rally. Maybe I spoke too soon uh, because it was a rally and it's evaporated pretty substantially. The Dow, uh, which was up at least 500, is only up 46. You've got the S&P 500 up three. NASDAQ is down as the Russell is and 417 is the yield on the 10 year note. So that brings us to where we stand, Weiss. Hotter than expected jobs. Yields were up. Some reasonably hawkish Fed speak today, particularly from the Richmond Fed President Barkin. And yet, stocks were rallying. We've sold off a bit as we come on the air. What's going on today, do you think? I think it's clear. If you take a look at the yield in the 10-year, the rally picked up momentum as you saw the 10-year yield decline and actually was lower today than it was yesterday at one point. Now you've seen that reverse. So, so the market is taking its cue from the bond market. But look, you know, we could see another rally. I think that basically you'll see some risking and then de-risking into CPI next week. But overall, we're going to get the brunt of the Fed activity with earnings in fourth quarter. It'll get worse in the first quarter next year, and it'll get worse in the second quarter. So you're still coming off that sugar high from just an unrealistic scenario, which meaning that free money globally. So you really have to question if those multiples, and I don't question the multiples at the peak in 2021, didn't deserve to be there. They were on quicksand. So now it's got to overshoot to the downside or at least reset. So even if you get to a 15 PE, that's a moving target because you don't know what the E is until you get into mid-year next year. So I continue to be bearish, seeing, seeing trading opportunities along the way. All right, I'll go to Dubrovko since you're sitting um, right here. It's good to see you back in person. Um, I'm curious as to where you think we currently are in light of everything that Weiss said. As I laid it out at the beginning, we've had this you know, fairly turbulent week. You had a Fed meeting. You, now you've got some Fed speak. You've got more data. Where are we going from here? So I do think that the Fed is uh, it's a headwind and uh, doesn't seem like things will get much easier there uh, in, the coming, in the coming period. Um, on a slightly more positive note, I do think China reopening is definitely getting a bit of a buzz and may, maybe helping a bit uh, global risk sentiment. So I do think that's playing a role. Um, positioning still, for the most part, remains pretty low. And uh, you could see a bit of pickup in buybacks. We're coming out of the buyback blackout period. And for some of the sort of reasons around the Inflation Reduction Act, companies may look to you know, move some of their 1Q buyback activity to now 4Q. So I think that could help the market 
in the short term as we go into December. But the bigger question, I think, remains uh, 2023 and specifically around earnings and how much potential um, slowdown we see. There. But you don't see as much sn- uh, slowdown in earnings as some of the more dire forecasts are suggesting. You revised it lower mm-hmm. um, to 225. That's still pretty darn good considering where some projections have moved closer to 200 bucks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How do you justify that? So, look, we revised the lower. We were at 240 consensus. In the meantime, I want to say last few weeks has come from about 240 to now low 230s. Um, so, yeah, 225 is calling for basically flat growth. We still see top line expanding next year. We see some margin, uh, you know, compression, but not significant. So, again, I think it depends on how central bank policy continues to evolve. Uh, the dollar effect, how that evolves. Uh, labor market, I think, is extremely important because that continues to drive pricing power. So if labor market next year really starts to contract, I think pricing power is going to start cracking. And then I think margins come under bigger pressure. So 225, if I had to sort of argue upside versus downside risk to the number, definitely downside. But we're basically looking to gather some more inputs before before eventually uh, re- revisiting that. So, Shan, you got a couple of issues that we got to contend with, um, certainly as it relates to today's jobs report. You could say, OK, uh, the labor market is probably still hotter than the Fed would like it to be. But then you could also, I think, make the statement that, well, they've raised 300 basis points in six months and the economy is kind of hanging in there pretty well adding a lot of jobs. It's pretty resilient. It shows you the level that we started this whole journey at, which was a pretty high economic base. So it's the, okay, the Fed has done a lot. We still have to wait a little bit to see it fully get through the system. But the economy is is holding up well enough that maybe in some corners there's the view that they can actually pull this off, that they're not going to put us off the cliff that they can somehow land the plane softly. However, um, you know, some people want to suggest that that's nearly impossible at this point. Well, I think it's your definition of soft landing. Uh, I think that the expectation of that we won't see a, an economic contraction, even if it's shallow for a couple of quarters in late 23 and early 24, um, I, you know, our view is that that is, is, is likely the soft landing scenario. I think a soft landing that uh, foregoes recession entirely, um, I think is going to be very difficult given the, the rate hikes that you spoke of and the fact that we haven't seen that transmission. So if you look at what's happening in the job market, you know, month over month, wages up 0.4%, year over year 4.7%. That is the stickiest form of inflation, Scott, as we know. And so that still has to be factored in over the course of the next year or so. Um, and if you think about the pricing power that some of these companies have been able to continue to exert in terms of the inner elasticity um, of the demand that the consumer is experiencing, like you look at Expedia's results, for instance, it is continuing in the services sector. So the hiring that we're seeing is in services. That's where the demand has continued. That is where we see pricing power um, for the most part. We're starting to see that deterioration on the good side. You're starting to see deterioration in, you know, in tech spend, Um, you know, concerns about the potential backlog that we see for these tech companies not materializing. So we are entering into a slower growth environment next year. I think the Fed has done a lot. I don't think that we have the full transmission. I disagree with Steve um, that you know we're going to see continued restrictive policy from the Fed in the second quarter because I think we're going to see 
meaningful um, improvement in producer prices, and that is going to start to trickle down. But if people are sitting here thinking that when we talk about a potential soft landing, that that implies a, a, a scenario where the U.S. economy does not contract, um, I, I think that that's probably a little bit uh, too optimistic. But I mean, Shan, they look, they, the Fed, um, in terms of your disagreement with Steve, um, they may and they will they will slow the pace of, of rate hikes, and at some point they may stop. But as Fed members have repeatedly suggested, higher for longer is the most likely scenario, and that in and of itself is restrictive. In and of itself is going to be it restrictive, irrespective of whether they continue to raise rates or not. They're going to stay at that level for a while. But they're also rolling off the balance sheet right now, Scott, that at any point in time, they can change the pace of that. This quantitative, this idea about quantitative easing to quantitative tightening, quantitative tightening is not just rates right now. And so there's a lever there that I think people forget that isn't one that they're going, they have to necessarily telegraph as um as articulately as Powell has done over the course of the last couple of months, we talk about the press conferences, the difference between the statement and the press conferences. And, and Steve Leisman did a great job um, this morning in discussing that. Uh, but I think that what we're really looking at is the potential for this other lever to be utilized. I don't think the Fed wants to be seen as accommodative in any way right now because they understand that inflation is the number one pressing problem for consumers here in the United States and globally, frankly. But I do think that we're overstating the rates will change last. The quantitative tightening could change before that if they are seeing too much transmission or oversteering affecting the economy. You know, the other issue, Jason, is, you know, was laid out here. Uh, if you want to take it sort of the here and now versus what's what lies ahead, why did we have a big rally today? Is it, as Dubrovko said, on this notion of the China zero COVID policy going away uh, over the next couple of days? Um, there are some suggestions, at least what I'm seeing from people who are sending me, um, that that's it's ridiculous to think that that's going to be something real and it would be a sell into the move that we've had today. And that, Jason, is why you had an evaporation of the move in and of itself as some try and gauge whether it's legit or not. And it's a, a, an important thing to to uh, discuss when you think about that whole policy and what it means to global markets. Absolutely, Scott. So I think, you know, China reopening is is obviously a positive development. We've 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 seen how restrictive they've been throughout the pandemic. So so any any positivity in terms of an opening, I think, has an impact on the market. You know, the other thing I would say as it relates to kind of the jobs numbers, we have seen a slight deceleration in wage growth, um, which I think has been taken as a positive. And we're looking at all the jobs data we got this week. You know, the jolts was a surprise to the upside. ADP was a surprise to the upside. You know, and then we had a Fed that in the statement, as Shannon, Shannon articulated, that, hey, listen, there's, there's a lag effect, you know, and the market started to run on that news. And then once the commentary started and, um, you know, Powell just really just threw out this idea of, of a pivot out the window, uh, markets start to sell off again. So, you know, my, my base case as we kind of move forward, you know, the, the Fed will remain very much engaged. They've got to beat down this inflation problem. We have a print next week. You know, we'll likely still have an eight handle on it. That is the problem. That's what they're going to still work through. Yes, uh, hikes will 
probably moderate from here, maybe a 50 basis point in, in December and slightly lower from then, and then maybe stopping um, you know, in, in Q1 of, of 2023. So I think that's kind of what we're looking at as investors. There's still areas of the market that are working, healthcare, energy. You know, growth has obviously taken the brunt of the pain thus far this year, but there's still opportunities out here, and I think you have to just look at it very closely. The other idea, Bryn, is that who cares what the Fed says? It's what they're going to be able to do that matters more than anything else. And the suggestion that if you think that the terminal rate's going to go to five or beyond, uh, to some, that's laughable that they're not going to be able to to do that. That's what Gunlock told me out in Denver. Listen. I don't think they're going to be able to pull that off. I, I think that uh, there's too many signs of the economy weakening already. The leading economic indicators, which no one wants to talk about anymore, but they're negative year over year. They're negative 5 percent for the last six months annualized. That's a very strong sign of a recession in several months. The yield curve is inverted. Of course, that's Two's tens at negative 50. That's a precursor with a few month lag of a recession. So the two year is at 472 now. I think it got above 480 um, earlier. And, you know, as Gunlock has suggested, the Fed follows the two year. That's really the, the Federal Reserve in principle is what the, the two year does. But how do you see this this whole deal here with, uh, you know, we're going to break this winning streak likely this week. We had a decent move today. What, what lies ahead in a seasonally you know, good period for stocks. Well, well, let's be let's be clear about something. The Fed has no idea what inflation is going to be in the next six or 12 months. And the two main things that 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 everyone needs to understand is that if we have a recession, it won't look like other recessions because we're missing three million people from the jobs market. And so the jobs market is going to remain incredibly tight. So the Fed can't create humans and they can't print oil. And so looking at like as investors, what they what they should be looking looking at going back to your two year, the Fed follows the two year and never have we had the Fed stop a tightening cycle when Fed funds was below CPI. And so you can drive a truck through Fed funds and CPI. So I think you're going to see the two year get well above five percent. And until that happens, there's going to continue to be what we've been experiencing this year with a lot of volatility in the market. And I don't think constructively markets can go above that 200-day moving average of around 4150 until we get through this two years stopping to go higher. And that's not even remotely happening right now. Dubrovko, you had a target of 4900 on the S&P, which you cut this summer down to 48. You sure you didn't mean 38? <laughs> you go 48. Um, I don't know. You know, but do you think people are too negative? Were you overly positive? How, how do we square all of this? In my head, it actually was pretty simple. Um, we entered a year very positive on fundamentals. I've gotten a lot of pushback on fundamentals coming into this year from many. And yes, at some point, fundamentals will roll over, but we thought 2022 too early. Um, I do think that fundamentals deteriorating could become a 2023 story. The part that we got wrong was the Fed. We generally didn't think that the Fed would move as aggressively. And so the biggest headwind that the markets uh, face this year has basically been uh, a massive uh, multiple D rating, and especially in the high duration stocks. We've been negative on high duration stocks versus short duration. We just didn't think that the move would be as, 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 as significant. And frankly, uh, generally, I think the view was give or take intact <clears throat> all the way 
throughout the summer, but I think when you got to Jackson Hole and a decisively much more uh, hawkish Fed. Yeah, right. It was an eight-minute speech, right. if I recall. Yeah. Eight minutes of hawkishness yeah. that sort of changed the whole paradigm. Correct, correct. And so that's where I think, you know, you got to really then shave off structurally the multiple. And uh, again, the reason for our thinking on the Fed was also because various parts of inflation we don't think are really demand-driven. They're very idiosyncratic, supply-driven. And I'm afraid that even Fed doesn't have all the tools in place to, to, to tackle that. But are we still at a point where if you didn't think the Fed was going to be as aggressive as it was, are some still in denial as to how aggressive they're going to remain? Yeah, there's definitely, there's still definitely some denial, you know. Some believe, you know, terminal Fed funds is going to go to six. Others say, no way, it's not going to even get to five. So, um, you know, I, 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 think, I think the Fed, it's basically, you know, the Fed and earnings, I think, remain sort of the key, uh, the key variables here. I do think the Fed probably will, be, will become a um, less and less of a headwind for the market. So you could actually see even next year some re-rating in the multiple on the back of Fed pausing or perhaps being forced to cut back. But earnings, I do think, is where we really need to focus, where you could have, I'm afraid there's more downside and upside risk. Well, what kind of multiple are you thinking about putting on 225 in earnings for next year if you admit that people are probably still in some level of denial about how aggressive the Fed's going to be? So if you buy into the soft landing, mild recession type scenario, I think a multiple of 16-ish, 16 and a half, maybe even 17, just given where positioning is, I think is, 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 is game. Uh, if, on the other hand, you know, you're actually going to see broader labor market contraction and a little bit deeper recession, then I think the multiple probably is going to be approaching 14 and a half, 15. And that's when the market starts to sniff out low 3,000. So, I mean, 3,600 is, is uh, 16 on yeah, 225. So that's fair value. 36 to 38, I would put some form of fair value, assuming the Fed stays the course and you are able to avoid some form of, call it, deeper recession. What do you think? So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think 32 to 3,400 is the way to go. But let me just correct one thing Shannon said. There's no basis for disagreeing with me. I didn't see the, say the Fed would continue in the second quarter. I said the after effects of what the Fed's doing will continue in the second quarter. Point one, point two, I was remiss. Being top-ranked II in strategy for five years, having run a global research department, is just an incredible feat particularly in changing markets like they are because the voters get so fickle. The third point I'd say is that China opening may be a very short-term positive, like a day. But if you think about it, that's hugely inflationary. Think of every energy house came out and said, we've got oil holding where it is. Right. Without China there, we've got, we've got iron ore, you know, which collapse, which could reverse. So I think that'll actually keep inflation higher for longer and that the Fed trimming their balance sheet, $9 trillion, is also unprecedented. Right, but China reopening um, may be inflationary, but it's also a tremendous help to the global economy to keep it right. at a significantly higher level of potential growth, which could cushion the landing, so to speak. It, Somewhat. It, it, it could, but I, the focus clearly is on inflation first and foremost. And that's what's going to drive it. I actually think, and this is where I'll disagree with Shannon, that the Fed can create people. You know why? Because the labor participation rate has declined yet again to very low levels, and you're depleting people's savings, and you're depleting the market. And you know what? The market, Powell's like Moses. 
Moses went up Mount Sinai, came down, saw all these people partying, and said, whoa, I'm going back up the mountain. When I come down, you better get some religion. So when he sees the market rise, that's a Fed tool, right? He doesn't want to see that. He wants to see 3,200, right? To maybe. get people in the right frame maybe. of mind, get people back to work. Yeah, maybe, but you could also say that he, where maybe he and they wanted, you know, conditions to tighten more, you could also suggest, well, if he knows he's raised 300 basis points thus far and things are holding in okay, then maybe they can pull it off. Why, that's why they continue to say, well, it's not a foregone conclusion right. that you're going to go off the cliff. There has to be some level of strength to give them the belief that they can have a soft landing or even a mildly hard one, a soft-ish. I, I don't think that the presumption is that they're, that they that their balances are much more inclined, or I much more prefer a soft landing, and I'm willing to risk inflation staying higher for longer to engineer that. I don't think that's the case. I think they're willing to sacrifice the economy completely to get inflation down, because long term, that's much more important. And they very, they very well may be. Um, it's to the degree to which they're willing to sacrifice the economy. Obviously, sure. they need it to slow down. They don't want to crash it. No. Um, they don't. But, but they as, least, as Leisman suggested, maybe they would be willing to, depending if that was the only thing that could, could get the thing under control. So what areas do you think I want to rely on most in the scenario in which you see lies ahead? Sector-wise? Yeah. Theme-wise? Yeah. So, I, you know, theme-wise, high level, deglobalization, elevated cost of capital for longer. Uh, those are some of the, I think, key themes that we have to think about when sort of, you know, constructing your portfolio. So in other words, the old playbook where you just kind of run to tech and tech and tech, I'm not sure we're, we're, we're going to be there in 23, maybe in 24, maybe in 25, but not quite 23. So now sector-wise, energy has been our sort of flagship sector that we've been pushing heavily this year, last year. Uh, it's rallied a ton the last month. So at this very moment, you could see even some sh very short-term profit-taking. But we think that the, the sector risk-reward-wise remains a very bullish story going into 2023 because of supply-demand di dynamics. Um, healthcare? Healthcare, I think, is a good one. We've been overweight. Uh, I would even sort of highlight some of the higher-risk areas within healthcare, like biotech, like medical devices. And frankly, let's see what happens with midterms. But if you do get some form of gridlock outcome, Generally, healthcare tends to like gridlock better than a, a sort of a flush. Uh, so uh, those two, I would I would definitely highlight as as areas where I would be looking to deploy risk in any form of pullback. So, do me a favor. I was gonna I was gonna say goodbye to you here, but stay on the other side of the break, because it's been a horrible week for for tech, um, for for mega cap tech, which we're gonna discuss after the break. And I do want to get into that a little bit more with you uh, as well. Is that cool? Absolutely. All right, good stuff. So Dubrovko is going to stick around. We have uh, significant moves to get through as well from the committee uh, in tech and elsewhere. We'll reveal them next. We're back in just two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit odfl.com to learn more. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. 
Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. All right, welcome back. You see, uh, we got a mixed picture on Wall Street right now. Uh, Jason Snipe, terrible week for tech, down 7% week to date. You've got almost every mega cap tech stock sitting at 52-week lows or around that level, despite Apple, uh, or except for Apple is probably better, better said. Is it time to reevaluate all of these stocks for performance over the next year at least? I would absolutely say that, Scott. I think there's so many headwinds, I think, going forward for tech. Obviously, FX has been a major issue that we talked about across the board for all these companies, right? So I think that's a concern. Um, you know, the cost of capital. I mean, Dubrovko just mentioned that in the earlier block. The cost of capital is rising. So, you know, a lot of these companies have leveraged the credit markets to grow their companies. Um, and I think the other thing is just you know, services, products, I mean, a lot of demand has been pulled forward through the pandemic. There's been a deceleration in a lot of those areas for most of these companies. So I think it's, it's, it's going to be a tough sleigh moving ahead again with a Fed that's very much engaged. You know, and I think there's obviously other areas of the market that, that we could see growth in. Of course, we saw the Dow, you know, really return over, over the last several weeks, you know. So, so I think that old economy story will continue to play a role. So innovation, slowdown in, in cloud and, and other services, I think is, is, again, continues to be headwinds you know, for this area of the market. And I think there's other places you can make money. So Shannon, Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, Alphabet, those are all yours too. Uh, and I know you've been trimming them for the better part of the year. Uh, is it time to sell them altogether and move into other names? Or what do you think? Well, what we've tried to do, Scott, in, in trimming, you know, we've been trimming our overall technology exposure, and I'm talking about sort of the technology sector. Um, we continue to think about tech being a, a disruptive force across a number of sectors and industries, but there's, there's other ways to play it than just in, in the true technology sector. What we have been doing, however, is diversifying as well. And so I think if you look at the concentration in the S&P 500 coming into the pandemic, that was one of the, the major concerns. And so in order to diversify your exposure to technology, not only from a, from a um, revenue projection standpoint, but also from a multiple standpoint. I mean, there, you know, not everything in the quote unquote technology sector is, you know, 
at, a, at, an, at a, an outsized multiple compared to the index. And so I think that there's a, an opportunity here to rethink what type of technology exposure that you have. However, I continue to go back to, and, and I don't disagree with Dubrovko, maybe this is more of a uh, you know return to 2024 story, uh, companies that are able to engineer growth on the top line and the bottom line in a slower growth environment are still going to be very attractive longer term, but we have to get to a valuation and a multiple that makes sense for people to want to move back into these stocks from a longer term perspective. We had a sea change in, in, in the way that we should view Dubrovko, these stocks? Look, so I kind of think about the current environment. There's definitely some similarity with the, with the post-TMT environment. And so I think this year, last 12 months, was really a period of what I like to refer equity duration cleansing. Are you talking about the post-tech media telecom blow-up from blow 2000? Up, yes. yes. So like the, okay. fir- the first 12 months following that blow-up, the, the, the most expensive stuff significantly underperformed, derated the cheaper stuff, let's say. And then for the subsequent two, three years, you continue to see the rotation, but just not as, not, not as uh, it, it wasn't as wild. So I think the brunt of the hit that tech took, I think, is behind us. Uh, so I don't think the pain is going to be as big in 23 and 24. But nonetheless, I would still continue to argue you continue to see a, a sort of a rotation from expensive to cheap to old economy type um, you know, sector. So whether that's energy, whether that's parts of parts of commo- other parts of commodities, part, some parts of materials, whether that's agriculture, um, that's where I think you have to uh, you have to focus. And again, think about the fact that energy at one point was I think only like 2.5, 2.6, 2.7 percent of equity benchmark. Tech was on the other side of the extreme. So I yeah. think it's a longer term mean reversion that's happened. But aren't these like so-called older technologies more cyclical in nature than some of the mega cap? Tech stocks? No. Well, mega cap is cyclical. You think about Google, you think about Apple. Apple is a staple stock. It's, I think it's got cyclicality. Google's got cyclicality. Amazon's got, Amazon's got cyclicality. Not as much, though, as, you know, I don't want to paint any brushes over stocks, but for example, like, uh, you know, a Qualcomm or a, a so-called old right. tech stock like that relative to the Microsofts of, or Apples of the world. Yeah, so these are, I would say, newer tech stocks that I think have become more central to the economy and I think have picked up cyclicality. So I wouldn't necessarily compare them apples okay. to apples. Yeah, but Why? So you sold Alphabet um, and you bought more Microsoft. I did. So Microsoft's not a big position yet. You know, I'd gotten, uh, I'd gotten out of just about all of it, or I did get out of all of it, based upon what we had seen in Europe, which is complete moratorium on decisions in cloud. Um, but I bought some more. I, I think I'll be able to buy more at 200, maybe a little lower. And it's basically because I've got so such uh, low equity exposure that I thought that one will stand the test of time. But, you know, to Dubrovko's point, these are sick companies now. You can only grow so far before you're so enmeshed in the economy that there's that cyclicality. For Alphabet, it's a different story. While Alphabet looks cheap, right. on Monday when the Supreme Court came out and agreed to hear Gonzalez versus Google, which is the Section 230 case, which protects them against any lawsuits, and in this case, you know, Gonzalez family's accusing Google of basically, you know, helping to uh, to kill their daughter. That's gonna, that can be retroactive in terms of lawsuits that come after them. Now, I don't know when they're going to hear it. They haven't decided on right. time yet. That's potentially disaster. It's a big binary. But I mean, I, I uh, obviously they're they're cyclical. Right. But in a slower growth environment, isn't their growth even as cyclical as the companies are potentially better than others? Yes, it is. However, there's a, there's a valuation umbrella in the market. 
And when you say a company like Google, as I've said in the past, deserves a premium multiple, Supreme Court case aside, premium to what? So if you have a negative view in the market, as I do, and you believe that the P.E. multiple is going to be compressed. As you do. As I do, you can't help but believe that those stocks can go down as well. Okay. And I don't think it's over in terms of the slowdown in cloud spending. All right, we're going to leave it there. Thank you for sticking around. Thank That's Jabrovko Lakos uh, joining us today from J.P. Morgan. And congrats again, number one, five years in a row. Appreciate that. Coming up, our earnings roundup of the biggest hits and misses. The committee, of course, positioning there. We'll discuss how they're playing it next. The COP27 Climate Conference kicks off this weekend in Egypt, where nearly 100 heads of state will gather to discuss green hydrogen, water and food security, and transitioning energy to sustainable sources. Investors managing $42 trillion in assets are calling on governments to reduce fossil fuels and require large companies to increase climate-related disclosures. That's your ESG Fast Fact of the Day. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to the Halftime Report. I'm Contessa Brewer with your news update this hour. South Korea scrambled 80 fighter jets after detecting North Korean warplanes near its shared border this morning. Overnight, the North fired off artillery and launched multiple missiles into the sea yesterday. South Korea and the United States continue conducting joint military exercises. A doctor in Texas is working to determine if quicker police action in response to the Uvalde shooting could have saved more lives. Austin's chief medical officer says the review will look at autopsy reports and medical records to determine if more victims would have survived if medical response had been faster. We don't know whether this review will influence at all the state's criminal investigation. And Pfizer says its updated vaccine booster shot generates a stronger immune response to new variants than the uh, original formula. The results have not yet been published in a medical journal or reviewed by outside scientists. So... Scott, you take that for what you will. Contessa, thank you. That's Contessa Brewer. Twilio, Jason Snipe. That's the dirty word of the day. The stock is getting hammered. You own it. Now you really own it. Although yeah, less of it. No doubt about it, Scott. Yeah, yeah a lot <laughs> less of it. You got it, Weiss. Um, listen, man, this is a price of sales stock. I mean, it's got a very innovative communication platform, but the guide was, was terrible. Right, and miss the street badly. Um, expectations. So, I mean, they had 33% revenue growth. Last year was 60%. You know, again, in an environment like this, these are the stocks that get hurt. It's down 84% uh, year to date. You know, they're talking about getting to profitability in 2023, but this is, a, this is a long-term story, right? So you have to be patient here. But again, very small position for us, but this, this has been painful for sure. You're gonna, and you're gonna stay with it? I know it's a very long-term story, but did you just say it's down 80 some odd percent? Because um, that makes it obviously hard to, yeah. to be yeah. patient, as you suggested that, that people need to be. 
1,000%. I mean, for me, when I, when I look at positions and names like this in this economy, you got to make sure you right-size these type of positions. I mean, they're, they are, in, in a, and again, you know, in, in, a, in a time like this, these are, these are stocks that get hit. Um, you know, if, if there's a miss, if there's a small miss in the guide, again, we're, we're guiding into a foggy environment. You know, so we're going to still remain patient. Again, a small, very small position for us. We right-sized it last year and still faced some pain last year and obviously feeling the pain this one. All right. Um, I hear you. Uh, PayPal, you want to take that, too, before I go to Bryn on it? Because you own that one as well. I got a price target down to 107 at Ray J, 100 at Credit Suisse, uh, 100 at Wedbush as well. Why don't you take a stab at that? And then, Bryn, uh, you up, you're up next. Yeah. So, so PayPal, I thought, was a very solid report. I mean, the take rate was up. You know, obviously, there's an activist in there in Elliott, which is really focused on the cost-cutting uh, Cost cutting numbers are looking at 1.3 billion next year. They announced a buyback, a buyback last quarter, 15 billion. So yes, the stock has got punished as well. The multiples come in to 18 times. I like the collaboration with Apple and Amazon. So I think there's sunnier skies ahead for PayPal. You know, they have 430 million users. I mean, they got a really strong base there, which I think they can can grow. And they're far more focused now than I think they've been in previous quarters. So I like it here. I think. You know, there's there's still opportunity for this one to continue to move here. Bryn, why don't you take PayPal and then you can take Coinbase, too? Yeah, perfect. I, I thought the, the, the quarter was great. You know, I've talked about PayPal the past few quarters being on my chopping block. Last quarter to me was a turning point. I feel like Dan Schulman and his team had much more focus last quarter and they continue to cut costs. They're going to cut 900 million this year. They're going to do a billion two in cost cutting. They're still growing. They have, they reaffirmed, although they cut their guidance for the Q4 because of e-commerce uncertainty, they reaffirmed and raised earnings guidance next year and look to be growing 15% earnings. They're doing a buyback. You know, I think the buy now, pay later, they say they're the biggest buy now, pay later platform in the world with, with, um, with processing up 150%. Venmo, to me, they have 90 million users, 57 monthly active users. And I, I know that younger demographic, they continue to lean into that. So this is a name now I'm actually looking to add to the position because I do think the multiples come in, but going forward, they continue to, to cement themselves in this payment ecosystem, which I think has, has really good growth potential at a reasonable price going forward. Okay. Uh, you want to take, yeah, take coin real quick. Yeah, so, so Coinbase bottom line is this. There was nothing to get excited about that report, but here's the deal. They still have $5.6 billion in cash. They, they had 5.7 last quarter. So the stock trades at about three times cash. The debt they have doesn't mature until 2028 and 2031 with an average expense ratio, uh, average interest expense of around uh, 3.5%, so about $70 million a year in interest expense. So you could actually buy this name here, and I have a call idea. You could buy it here around 60. You could sell the January 75 calls. You're going to get $5. That's an 8% premium income for like 10 weeks. And you still have 23% upside on the stock. So I do think the company will trade probably between the stock 50 to 70. So I think the call idea at this level, I think you have limited downside. You get really good 8% income for 10 weeks and nice upside as well. All right. Good stuff. All righty then. Shares of Starbucks on pace for their best day since March of 2020 after the company topped earnings estimates. Stephanie Link, she owns the stock. She joins us now by phone. Steph, uh, obviously having a nice day. Got a bunch of price target raises. How much of this do you think is due to earnings and how much do you think it's due to 
potentially positive headlines in China, where the story matters a whole heck of a lot for Starbucks. Yeah, and, and thanks for having me, Scott. I think it's half and half, to be honest with you, because the quarter was really quite good. But China, <clears throat> as you mentioned, is about 12.3% of total revenues to Starbucks, but it is the growth engine for sure over the next uh, decade. Um, but the quarter was really pretty good, right? I mean, global comps at 7% versus 4 expected, uh, and that included a down 16 in China. But remember, last quarter, you had down 44% comp in China. So they are, they are making headway, and I don't know if they're going to reopen in China, but I think eventually they will, and that certainly will help the story. But I also think the reason the stock is up is because the guide was uh, in line with what the company uh, guided to in the, at the September analyst day, and people were skeptical then um, when they said we're going to grow over the next three years 15 to 20 percent in earnings. Um, they, uh, the fourth quarter actually, I think, gave credibility to the fact that they can grow 15 to 20 percent. And by the way, they are spending heavily right now. So the second half of fiscal 23, we'll see an acceleration. And I think you're going to see the high end of earnings growth as a result. So there's a lot to like here, but I do, uh, I, I do uh, actually agree with you that, that China and the news on China certainly is helping the stock. Today. Yeah, so keep your eye on those headlines, too, as we discussed at the top. Steph, thanks. We'll talk to you soon. That's Stephanie Link. We do have other moves to discuss with the committee and several. We'll do it next. All right, let's talk about some of the moves the committee's making. Shan, you first. You sold the CME group. You bought TradeWeb. Interesting moves. Why? So uh, TradeWeb, pure play uh, marketplace for electronic fixed income trading. Uh, that is really an undersaturated market. Institutions are increasingly looking to create more productivity and efficiency in their fixed income trading. And we think that TradeWeb is, is uniquely positioned for that. The margin, there's opportunity for margin expansion that would be more competitive with what you're seeing for larger exchanges. And from a trading perspective, you know, just looking at CME, CME is down about 25% year to date. TradeWeb's down about 45% year to date. And we do think that there is, this transition to more electronic fixed income trading is going to accelerate over the next couple of years. So there's growth opportunity there. Okay. Steve Weiss, mm -hmm. uh, we mentioned some of the moves you made, but you have a number of moves here. Yep. Depot, you sold, Home Depot. You sold Netflix. You sold the ProShares Trust Short Qs, the PSQ. You sold the ProShare Short 20 plus Treasury TBF, and you sold Adobe. Yep. Pick a couple, don't give me everything on, no, on, I, I on that, I but, but the more significant moves. Netflix stands out to me. Yep. Um, you were stopped out of Depot. You lost money. But Netflix, why'd you sell that? Yeah, well, this is my anti-Kyrie movement because it's going to be both intelligent and contrite. So um, I made a mistake in Netflix, pure and simple. I, I try to be a shepherd, not a sheep, and I got led to slaughter because the momentum already happened. The stock went from 220 to like 290. I got in, was looking okay for a while, and then got stopped out and lost money on that as well as a Home Depot. Um, I, as I had said in my comments last Friday or Monday, that, uh, look, I thought the market consensus was that Powell would pivot. I disagreed. So I put some exposure on to play that momentum and then took it off, thankfully, before the, uh, the press conference. After the press conference happened uh, on, uh, it was yesterday, I took off PSQs, and I thought TBF would have been a great trade. I want to take it off and see if rates come back down post that as they have before. So I'll put them both back on. 
but I'm going to stay light in my equity exposure. And because I had light equity exposure, uh, I was able to take off my hedges, which is PSQ. Okay. All right. Good stuff. We'll take a quick break. Mike Santoli joining us with his midday word on this Friday. We're back right after this. All right. Key earnings next week right there. Disney just under 100 bucks. Shannon, expectations are what? Uh, for Disney? Yeah. Yeah. So this stock, I, sorry, you, you broke up in my, in my head just okay. for a second there. Um, yeah, so uh, lower, uh, listen, this stock is trading on DTC, right? So if you're looking at what's going to drive the stock price next week, it's going to be reports on DTC. Expectations are for lower content spend there as well as for um, this growth of premium subscribers. So margins should improve in that part of the business, and I think that would be a positive. Catalyst has been for cash flow of parks. Uh, parks are not recession-proof, but they seemingly continue to be able to drive price increases. And so as long as you have the solid free cash flow generation from parks and you get some improved economics in DTC, uh, I think that we could see a, a nice lift for, for Disney out of this report. Jason Snipe, I know you watch this closely given where you've been in Netflix. What are your expectations here? For Netflix? For Disney. I know oh, you don't for own Disney. It. I'm sorry. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we sold it uh, last summer, I believe. Um, you know, I think Shannon, Shannon makes a great point. I mean, obviously, the DTC business is, is really what it, where it is. You know, Parks Revenue, it's a, it's a diversified product. They've spent a lot of money on content. Uh, so I, I'd like to see how that will matriculate through. Um, but for us, you know, as it relates to the streamers and folks in that space. I mean, Netflix is obviously uh, the one that we like here. But I think I think Disney could start to to start to make some movement here. Bryn, give me 20 seconds on Roblox next week. Expectations are what? Yeah, you want to see you want to see revenue, you know, north of, let's say, 600 million. It's still not positive E. So this is not a company that you're looking for a P.E. here. You want to see daily active users growing. You want to see how much money they're making per daily active user growing. That's been weak as of the past couple of quarters. But I continue to like this stock long term as a sticky platform that continues to have really dynamic um, engagement with its users on a daily basis. All right. Quick break. Final trades on the other side. Are you a veteran? Do you have a question for the Halftime Investment Committee? Email us a video with your name and rank. Ask Halftime at CNBC.com. You could be featured on our special show on Veterans Day. Thank you for your service. Friday at OT, where else would you rather be? Why? Because Ed Yardeni says the bottom is in for 2022. Despite everything that happened this week, we're going to test him on that big time when he joins me in overtime. Dan Greenhouse, Greg Branch, Avery Sheffield, Lauren Goodwin, Newton, and Kantrowitz are back as well on the latest on Twitter and the saga there. So we'll kick all that around. Let's do quick final trades. Bryn, go first. Uh, JEPQ. We sell the Qs in August when it's JPQ. It sells calls on the NASDAQ. Right now it has an annualized premium income of 17%. All right. Thank you, Shan. AMD, we're cautious in semis, but 
They're very strong in data centers right now. They're going to clear out inventory in Q4. And although PCs are struggling, they're taking share from Intel, which should offer a tailwind for the stock going into next year. Jay Snipe. I like Blackstone here. They were able to raise $45 billion in Q3, okay. which through a very difficult environment, have $182 billion right. to deploy. Sorry, right, but we got, yep, name. And buying the six-month treasuries and the two-year phenomenal. All right, I'll see you in overtime. The exchanges now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.